John chapter 6 is our passage. I told you earlier that um, I did think yesterday for a brief moment, should we, should we call an audible, should we switch what we're looking at, what we're talking about, and uh, just as soon as I thought it, I remembered what we were looking at, and I thought this is a, a great place, this is the perfect place uh, for us to read and to study and to listen to God's Word, and so we're going to do that this morning. There's some notes where you can follow along. The story that we're going to look at is probably the shortest group of verses that we will consider in our walk through the Gospel of John. Most of the, the passages that we're going to look at are a little bit longer. This one's very short, and we didn't read it earlier, so I'd just like to read it quickly. You follow along in your Bible, John chapter 6 Verse 16, it says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately The boat was at the land to which they were going. You might keep your Bible open. We're going to read back through that uh, verse by verse here in just a minute. If we want to make sense of this story, it's a familiar story. It's one that most of us know. It's one that if I peppered you with questions, you could probably come up with a lot of the details apart from reading it. But if we're really going to make sense of it, you've got to think about it in the context, the immediate context in John 6 and the larger context context in the Gospel of John. And so I want to start by reminding you, it's been a couple of months since we've looked at the Gospel of John, we've been in Hebrews, I want to remind you of sort of the overarching purpose of this Gospel. And it's John 20, 30 and 31, it says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, that's the Gospel of John, but these, these signs are written So that you may believe, not that you might just be the eternal optimist and think that it's all going to come out in the end, but that you might believe something specific about Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And we have that kind of faith, that by believing like that, you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote this book. And we've traveled through the first few chapters. It's before the summer, but we've traveled through the first Uh, five or so chapters in the Gospel of John. John has told us a number of interesting stories about Jesus' life. Uh, He's detailed uh, several interesting conversations that Jesus has had with different people, and he's told us about some of these signs, some of these miracles that Jesus performed that pointed to a greater reality. And the last sign that we saw Jesus perform is at the beginning of John chapter 6. It's the most public miracle that Jesus ever performed. There were 5,000 men there plus women and children. Maybe a crowd of 15,000 people saw Jesus perform this feeding. We call it the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle, this is in your notes, the only miracle during Jesus' earthly ministry that is recorded in all four Gospels. That makes sense. It was the most public, the most visible, more people knew about it. Each of the Gospel writers sort of picks and chooses what they're going to tell from Jesus' life, but all four of them said this story has to be included. As we keep reading the verses we just read, we realize that the very next group of verses is Jesus 
walking on the water. Now, before we get to Jesus walking on the water, you've got to understand what he just did, and you've got to understand what the crowd thought about it. Will you look in your Bible at John 6, verse 15? It says they were about to come. Jesus knew this. They were about to come and take him by force. They wanted to force Jesus to be their king. They had plans for Jesus. This is what we need you to do for us. We need you to be our king. We're going to force you into that role. And John says Jesus, not surprisingly, withdrew. He just walked away. He left all the excitement, all the, all the commotion, all the anticipation. He just walked away from all of it. And we learn in the Gospel of Mark that he went alone to a mountain to pray. Who knew the foundational story in the book of Exodus about Moses confronting the most powerful man in the world and leading God's people to freedom and then providing them with bread. And here they are in the wilderness and they see Jesus providing them with bread and their hope is maybe, just maybe, like Moses confronted Pharaoh, Jesus will confront Caesar. And what we want is to be free. And so we're going to take this man and we're going to force him to be our king in the hopes that he will set us free. And Jesus wants nothing to do with it. He just walks away. The very next moment is Jesus walking on the water. You find it in Matthew 14. You find it in Mark 6. Luke completely omits this from his gospel account. He does not include this story. When you read it in Matthew... There's an added detail. We're not going to talk about it because it's not in John, but there's an added detail in Matthew about Peter getting out of the boat and walking on the water. Matthew's the one who includes that. Mark includes one interesting detail. Mark's account of Jesus walking on the water suggests that there was a very important connection to the feeding of the 5,000. And this is the connection in Mark's mind. I just want you to see this from Mark chapter 6. It says, He got into the boat with them. This is Mark telling the story we just read. And the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. You remember, Jesus fed this crowd of people. There were 12 baskets left over. And the disciples took those baskets, and presumably they put those baskets right in the very boat that they were sailing across the sea in. And Mark says the way they handled this situation was a result of the fact that they really didn't understand about the loaves. They didn't make the connection between what was just happening and what they were currently going through. The big idea is very, very simple. It may not be the big idea you hear associated with this story many times, but this is the big idea. Jesus is the I am. He is the I am. He is the creator and he is the savior. That's the point of this story. Jesus is the great I am. He's the creator and the savior. Every detail in this story is pointing God's people, the disciples immediately, and you and I by implication, to take this away, that Jesus is the great I am. He's the creator and the savior of his people. If you look in John chapter 6, verse 4, there's a detail that says the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. All of this happened during the Passover. What were they celebrating during the Passover? The Exodus. 
Everyone's mind was thinking about Moses. Everyone's mind was thinking about God parting the Red Sea so they could walk through to safety. Everyone's mind was thinking about the provision of the manna in the wilderness when God brought them out into the wilderness. And all of the details in these stories are pointing you and me and the disciples and all of us to say, do you understand who you're dealing with here? This is not just another Moses. It's not just a greater Moses. This is the God of Moses. This is the great I am. The one who walks on the sea and brings you to safety. The one who provides bread for you to eat in the wilderness. Jesus is the great I am. He's the creator and he's the savior. Quick question. How many of you like to buy generic products at the store? At least from time to time right? Most of us, you go grocery shopping and you sort of go through and there's some of the things on your list that you look at and you say, I can save a decent amount of money if I buy the generic brand, the Walmart brand, the the Market Street brand, whatever. And so I'm going to buy that, the HEB brand, and I'm not going to get the real thing. Sometimes you may even like the generic brand better than the, the name brand. But there are some things, at least in our house, you do not dare buy the generic version. Right, And so I, I talked to Brooke this week. We were doing the dishes one evening, and I said, okay, uh, I'm going to use this Sunday, and I've got a list of things in my mind that if one of us was going to the store, you don't buy the generic, and let me hear your top five. And her top four were my top four, and then when I mentioned the fifth one, she's like, oh, yeah, I agree with that one too. So we're on the same page, and you may or may not be on the same page, but I'm right about this. And if you buy generic, you are... You are crazy. Number one, if you go to the store, look, you people that bring twist and shouts for the kids to eat at VBS, that is, that is not right. Bring Oreos, Oreos. It is not the same thing to buy the generic. So there you go. Number one, we want the real thing, Oreos. Number two, this one is important to me. Look, the real brand is in the middle. And the phony brands are on the side. I know they they got a name brand on it, but that might as well. Yeah, you can applaud for that. That's fantastic. Look, I don't want your Skippy. I don't want your Peter, Peter Pan. I don't want any of that Jif. It's either Jif or nothing. And I don't, look, my wife, we try to, you have to get sneaky to send your kids with peanut butter sandwich to school anymore. And so you got to buy like, you know, sun butter and fake butter and all these. Other, I don't want any of those. If I'm having peanut butter sandwich, I want Jif and I don't want any of this other stuff. What's the next one up here? Number three, Cheerios and toasted oats. You may not think this is a big deal, but I'm just going to tell you my experience is if you buy the toasted oats, you almost can't tell the difference looking at them. But when you put a bite in your mouth, you think, oh, those are made of cardboard. (laughs) Those were made 50 years ago. That's not the same thing. They look the same. They got me. So I don't know how you feel. But now look, Rice Krispies, you can buy generic Rice Krispies in case you didn't know. It's exactly the same. There's no difference. I think they make them at the same place, put them in different boxes. Cheerios, not the same. Number four, Blue Bell and Blue Bunny. That should be copyright infringement on some level to even put blue in the name of your ice cream. You cannot do that. It's not the same. Blue Bell or nothing. I don't even care if you lick my Blue Bell. You can take it out of the thing. You can lick it. 
And if I know that and I have a choice between licked bluebell or unlicked blue bunny, I'm taking bluebell every single time. I don't want blue bunny. And the last one, this is a big one. This is the big one, right? These two things are not the same. We lived in Kentucky for six years. They do not sell Dr. Pepper in Kentucky. And I can't tell you how many times we went to a restaurant and you say, I would like a Dr. Pepper. And the server says, I would be happy to bring you a Mr. Pibb. And you think, I would be happy not to tip you if you do that. Because I, no, it's not the same. I don't want it. It's Dr. Pepper or nothing. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring it up to say this. Sometimes when it comes to Bible stories, especially the familiar ones, sometimes we have a tendency to settle for the generic version of the story. Sometimes we talk about, you know, something that's well-known. We've heard it in Sunday school. We heard it at VBS. Uh, Maybe you've even taught some of these stories at some point in time. And we tend to just sort of water them down and we settle for the generic version. And I'm just telling you, it's not as good. And so sometimes we talk about David and Goliath. And we just water that story down to where all we end up saying is, David overcame his fear and you can overcome your fear. You can do it. That's not what that story is about. Right? It sort of has a ring of truth to it. And there was actually a, a clip floating around social media this week of a pastor sort of going down this train of thought. Oh, you're just like David and you can, you can be brave and courageous. You can do it, pat you on the back, build you up, make you feel good about yourself. But if you read the story, you realize I'm really not like David. I'm like the Israelites scared behind the, the bunker, afraid to go out and fight Goliath. I'm more like those people than David. Jesus is more like David. I'm... I'm not like the David character in that story at all. And so we just sort of water it down. And look, can you be courageous in life? Well, of course you can. It's just not really the point of that particular story. Sometimes we talk about Jonah and the fish. And we just water it down, no pun intended. We just water it down, Jonah and the fish. And we end up saying, look, Jonah was a missionary. You can be a missionary. And when I hear people say that, I just want to say to them, have you ever read the book of Jonah? That guy's the worst missionary in the history of missionaries. That's not what that's about at all. He was a rotten guy. I don't want any of you to be anything like Jonah. Don't just settle for the the watered-down generic version. And sometimes we come to this story. Jesus walking on the water. And there's wind and there's waves and there's all of this stuff. And we just sort of water it down. Again, you get the pun. And we end up saying... Jesus will be with you through the storms of life. And I just got to be honest with you, I don't think that's what this story is about at all. In fact, I think when you see what it's really about, it's so much more powerful and so much more important than just this idea that Jesus will be with you in tough times. Now look, listen, will Jesus be with his people in tough times? Absolutely. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. He's not going to leave you as orphans, but he's going to send his spirit to live in you. All of those things are true. It's just not the point of this story. And don't water it down to the point where you miss the true message, the greater message. And this is it. Jesus is the great I am, the creator and the savior of his people. And what I want us to do is just walk through the story. We're just going to read it a verse or so at a time. I want to point out a few things that you need to pay attention to. A few details in this story 
that are noteworthy and that will help you understand the big idea. The first two I did not put on your notes, but I'm going to put them up on the screen so you can write them down if you'd like to. Don't forget, in the previous story, there were 12 baskets of food left over. And the disciples took those baskets and they put those baskets in the boat. When they found themselves on this boat and Jesus was not with them and there was winds and there was waves and they were struggling hour after hour after hour, they could have, should have, looked down at the bottom of the boat and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, look at the baskets. Jesus cares about us. These baskets remind us of that. He cares for us. He will provide for us. Jesus can do anything. Look at the baskets. Jesus can do anything that he wants to do. And Mark throws in this detail and he says, they just didn't get it. They did not understand about the loaves. And that's one of the reasons they responded the way they did here in this story. The second detail I want to make you aware of or remind you of is Matthew 8, Mark 4, and Luke 8. And you say, well, what happens in those chapters? In those chapters, Jesus is with the disciples in a boat, sleeping in the back, And a huge storm whips up, and the disciples are frightened, and they say, Jesus, don't you care if we drown? And Jesus wakes up, and he looks at the wind and the waves, and he says, peace, be still. They've lived through that story at this point in the story. That's in the rearview mirror, right? When they're in the boat, without Jesus, with the baskets of food, they've already had the experience of Jesus calming the wind and the waves. To their defense, Jesus was with them in the previous story. And in this story, they may have found themselves thinking, Jesus is not with us. We are really in trouble. But they'd had that experience. There were baskets in the boat, and they knew that Jesus could control the wind and the waves. Look at verse 16. The first word I want you to notice is dark. Verse 16 and 17. John says, When evening came, the disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. And then he just adds this in. It was now dark. And he already told us it was evening, so you could have sort of surmised that. But he goes out of his way. It's a little bit redundant, and he says, I just want you to understand, it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. I want you to understand that in the Gospel of John, many times when John includes a detail like this, it's more than just an observation about what time the sun set. When John says that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, under the cover of darkness. He's not just talking about weather patterns. He's talking about the condition of Nicodemus's heart, and he's saying this was a guy who didn't get it. He didn't have all the pieces put together. And I believe that when John tells us it was evening, by the way, what I mean is it was dark. He's not just talking about sunsets. What he's really saying is these guys in the boat, they didn't really get it all yet. Mark says the same thing when he says they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hard. They just didn't get it all yet. And God is trying to teach them something important about who Jesus is. Look at verse 18. The wind was blowing. It came rough. Why? Because a strong wind was blowing. A strong wind was blowing. Now, you can go to this 
uh, part of the world today, you can visit it, and the same meteorological phenomenon take place today as they did 2,000 years ago. It already noted, John noted that they went down to the sea. There's cliffs that are a little bit elevated, and you go down to the Sea of Galilee, and just like you would travel down those cliffs, air can travel down those cliffs, and warm air crashes into cool air, and storms just pop up on this lake all the time. I want you to understand, this is not just John the weatherman saying there was a strong wind. This is John giving you a detail that's supposed to make you think, right? What were they celebrating in John 6 when Jesus gave them bread? They're celebrating the Passover. God saving his people through the water and providing them bread. If you go back and look in the book of Exodus, it's very clear that the night before God led his people through the sea, a strong wind blew all night long. It's the exact same words. A strong wind blew in Exodus, parted the sea in half, and now you read a strong wind that's supposed to be like a bell that goes off in your brain. You say, oh yes, it's the Passover. There was a strong wind in the first Passover. There's a strong wind in this Passover. And God saved his people through the water in that story. I bet God's about to save his people through the water in this story. God gave his people bread in that story. I bet God's about to give his people bread in this story. All the details should be firing off in your brain. It was dark. There was a strong wind. Thirdly, Jesus was walking. Verse 19 says, When they had rowed three or four miles, they saw Jesus on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. They saw him walking on the sea and coming near the boat. Not all of these guys, but some of these guys were veteran fishermen, right? Matthew was a a tax collector. So Matthew was probably legitimately terrified. Like this could have been the first squall in Matthew's life. And he doesn't know. They're yelling at Matthew to pull that rope and tie that knot. And Matthew's like, I just do math for a living. I don't know what's going on. Some of these guys knew what knew what they were doing. They'd been in situations like this. They knew storms could come up. And John says they struggled through the night, three or four hours struggling. They couldn't get where they wanted to go. Right? It was difficult. There was, there was strain. And then they just see Jesus walking on the water. Right? The word used to describe Jesus walking on the water would not be used to describe the crazy people who walk laps at the mall. Right? Those people are serious, like they are walking, and you better get out of their way because they're really getting after it. This is more like they saw Jesus had just taken a Sunday afternoon stroll on top of the waves. It wasn't straining. It wasn't difficult. They're straining and struggling all night long. Jesus is just strolling on top of the waves. And it's at that point that John says they were frightened. They were frightened. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. When you read about people in the Bible who have a direct encounter with the Lord, every single time those people are terrified. They're frightened. A sense of dread. You might even say holy fear comes over them. At times they think that they're going to die. At times they just fall down on their face. At times they blurt out things like, I'm in big trouble. I've just seen the Lord. But consistently, they're terrified. When they see the Lord, 
They're terrified. And Jesus comes strolling out on the, on the water, and they see him. And at this point, John says, they're terrified. They're not relieved. Think how strange that detail is. You'd think there'd be a little bit of, oh, thank goodness. Here comes Jesus. Instead, they see him. They have an encounter with the other, with the transcendent, with the holy. And just like everyone else in the Bible, when they have an encounter with God, they're terrified. Look at verse 20. But he said to them, remember they're terrified. He said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Literally, it's ego eimi in the Greek. And it could very easily be translated, it's me. Very easily. It would be the, the perfectly natural way if you called somebody on the phone and they didn't have caller ID. You remember those days? You don't have caller ID, you call somebody on the phone. Who is this? It's me. It's me. So it's just a natural way to say, it's me, don't be afraid. But it's also another detail, another callback to the Exodus story. And it's Jesus literally saying, I am. It's the same idea. It's the same translation. And it immediately takes your mind back to Moses having this encounter with the Lord at the burning bush. And Moses is terrified and he's hiding his face and he's afraid. What do I say? He's not sure he wants to do what God wants him to do. And he says, if I go and they ask me who sent me, what do I say? And he says, you just tell them that it's me sent you. I am sent you. And Jesus says the exact same thing here. When you read through the Gospel of John, there's a number of places where Jesus says, quote unquote, I am statements. I am the bread of life. We're about to come to that. I am the light of the world. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. Right? All these metaphors Jesus uses, these I am statements. But sometimes in the Gospel of John, Jesus drops the back half of the sentence and he just says, I am. And John wants us to understand that what Jesus is saying is, it's me. It's the creator. It's the one who made these waves. It's the Savior. It's the one who willingly came to identify with you in your sin and your suffering and your pain. It's me. It's the I am. The next detail is verse 21. It says, They were glad to take him into the boat. I'm reading the ESV. The King James is actually a little bit more literal here. It's, it's the actual word that John used when he says, immediately they received him. They were glad to receive him into the boat. And we're going to come back to that word received in a minute. They were glad to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What does all of that have to do with us? Let me give you four simple thoughts, and we'll wrap it up. How does the identity of Jesus revealed in this story affect my life? Number one, Jesus reveals himself to people on his own terms. You can't miss that. There is a mob of 15,000 people, give or take, who are so excited about Jesus, they want to make him the king, and Jesus walks away from those people. And he performs one of the most amazing miracles that's ever been performed in the history of the world in the middle of the night, in the middle of the lake, with no one but a bunch of unbelieving, dense disciples watching. 
Can you imagine if Jesus had taken that mob of 15,000 people who wanted to make him king and said, you like the bread? Watch this. I'm going to whip up a little bit of wind. I'm going to make some waves. And I'm just going to walk out across them. It almost makes you wonder, Jesus, do you not know anything about like PR? Like you've got these people right where you want them, it seems. They're eager for you to be their king. And Jesus just walks away from it. Why? Because Jesus knew that before he sat on the throne, he had to hang on the cross. It's not the time. And I'm not ready to reveal that to you. So I'm going to reveal something very, very special. Not to this mass of people that the world would define as ministry success, but just to a few knuckleheads in the middle of the night. They don't even know what's going on. They didn't even understand the last miracle. But to these guys, I'm going to show who I really am. He reveals himself to people on his own terms. Number two, a genuine encounter with God always results in fear. We've talked about this. When people in the scriptures have an encounter with God, they feel a holy terror. A sense of dread just overtakes them. These people, these men, see Jesus walking on the waves, and they're terrified. They're frightened. This is God coming to them, and they're frightened. Just some parallel passages you can look at. Genesis 1-2 says, in the beginning it was the Spirit of God. It was God himself in the, the form of the Spirit hovering over the waters. God was in control of the chaos of the waters. In the book of Job, chapter 9, verse 8, we read that it's God who created the seas and it's God, the Lord, who tramples on top of the sea. And we ought to be afraid when we read that. And these guys saw Jesus walking on the water. They're terrified. And then Jesus speaks and he says to them, exactly what God said to Moses in Exodus 3.16, I am. And they're terrified and they're frightened. And just like Moses hid his face from the Lord when he saw him and he heard him in this burning bush, the disciples are frightened. Listen, you and I are small people. We're really small. Yesterday should remind you of that. We are so small and so fragile. God is not small or fragile. You and I are sinful people. We fall far short of his standards and God is not sinful. He is holy. And when small, fragile Weak creatures, sinful creatures, wicked creatures like you and I have an encounter with the holy God, you will feel fear. You ought to feel that fear. And until you feel that fear, you're not ready to hear any of the good news of the gospel. Because until you feel that holy terror, you are no different. And I am no different than the people in that crowd who ate till their bellies were full and then had a plan that they were going to force Jesus to sign up for. The disciples were terrified. An encounter with God leads you fearful. Next, a relationship with Jesus results in hope. And that's what Jesus says to these guys. He doesn't say, you shouldn't be afraid. He doesn't say, why are you scared? You shouldn't be scared. He says, don't be afraid because it's me. 
I'm your hope. Right? The I am is not only your creator, but he's also your savior. In Jesus Christ, we move from fear to hope. Look how Paul described it. Paul was praying for his friends in Thessalonica. He said, we give thanks to God always for all of you. We're mentioning you in our prayers. We're remembering before God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and the steadfastness of hope, and that hope is in our Lord Jesus Christ. That hope is not just, we've said it many times this morning, is not just a vague, vanilla optimism that it's all going to be okay somehow in the end. It's faith in Jesus. It's hope in Jesus. And these men who were frightened, who were terrified, rightly so, found hope. Because it was Jesus. It was the the great I am, their creator and their savior. The last idea is this. There is a difference, could say a world of difference, in receiving Jesus and using Jesus. And this is where we come back to that word, they received him into the boat. They received him into the boat. Look back at John 6 verse 15 one more time. This is the mob. This is the crowd. This is the mass of people. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. You know, at first glance, you read that and you say, good for them. These people are ready to acknowledge Jesus as king. What's the problem? What's the big idea? They knew who Jesus was. They had hope that he would be their king. Well, good for these people. The problem is... They wanted to come and they wanted to take Jesus and force him to be their puppet king. Jesus, we want you to rule over us as long as you can do X, Y, and Z first. As long as you take care of these things first, we would love for you to be our king. And we want to force you to meet our agenda. Contrast that with what we read in verse 21. They were glad to receive him into the boat. And if you've been reading in the Gospel of John and you come to that idea that they took him into the boat, they received him into the boat, you should say, I've read that word before in the Gospel of John. You know, I think I read it in John chapter 1. I think it's somewhere about verse 12 where it says, To all who did receive him. Same word. They received him into the boat. And John says, To all who received him. Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but they are born of God. To those who receive him, you get to become a child of God. And for you and I, this last idea is really the the point of tension and the point of application. Regardless of what happened yesterday, but especially because of what happened yesterday. How are you approaching Jesus? There's two models presented here. One model is the person who is willing to come to Jesus and say a lot of nice things about Jesus externally as long as he fits into your role of who he ought to be. We need a king. And we need him five minutes ago and we think you could be that guy. This is what we want you to do. We're going to make you do this. We're going to force you to be our king. That's one way to approach Jesus. You can come and you can say, Jesus, I've got this problem, I've got this issue, and I'm bringing it to you. It sounds very good, it sounds very spiritual, but in the end, what you're coming to Jesus to do 
is asking Jesus to meet your agenda, your plans, your criteria of who we ought to be in your life. And the difference is simply to receiving. No strings attached. What claim do I have on you? Why would you listen to me and my plans and my agenda? You're the great I am. You made me and you saved me. And I'm going to receive you. I'm going to believe in your name that I might have life. I'm not coming telling Jesus who he needs to be for me. I'm coming simply acknowledging who he is and rejoicing in that and hoping in that and believing in that. I want to pray for you as we end this morning.